So Peter Chin came and spoke at our men's retreat a few years ago, and we liked him so much that we invited him to come back and speak again at our men's retreat. We liked him so much at that particular retreat that we decided to invite Peter to come and speak at our fall retreat, which is going to happen September 23 through 25. So, uh, uh, and Peter is here with us today. So Peter, come on up. This is Peter Chin. Peter is pastor at Rainier Avenue Church in Seattle, Washington. And uh, we've been studying the book of Galatians, particularly these two verses in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. So what Peter's going to do for us today is give us the broader view of what's going on in Galatians. So please welcome Peter Chin. Morning, this is Lava Church. I'm glad to be with you today. Um, I think I recognize 50% of the faces here because I have spoken at two men's retreats. Uh, my visualization of this church is that it was just a bunch of dudes. There were no women at all at PBC. It's just men who got together. And it's good to know it's not true. There's actually women who attend this church as well. Um, just by means of a quick introduction, I am a pastor at Rainier Avenue Church, which is in the south end of Seattle. Uh, I am married with five kids. And so, yes, that is five children. And uh, me and my wife have been married for 19 years now and uh, celebrating our anniversary in October. Um, we, I, in addition to pastoring, I also am a writer. I've written a book called Blindsided by God, um, which is a memoir of my wife's fight against cancer while pregnant with one of our children. And I've also been a contributor for Christianity Today. So that's been a part of my ministry as well. Um, as I was told about this, uh, about your sermon series on Galatians, I thought it'd be good to talk about the context because I love history. I'm a history buff. I was a history major in college. History helps me to know what I'm reading as I'm reading it. Without that context, it kind of just jumping into the 21st century person, it's a little difficult to do. So I love getting into the context and I want to share it with you so that as you go through it, hopefully it'll unlock something and it'll feel really fresh for you as well. The context for Galatians, or why he's writing this letter is this, is that Paul is addressing the influence of the Judaizers who placed equal importance on Christ and the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. So maybe you've talked about this already at PBC, that there arose this group of Jewish Christians who did place their faith in Jesus, but at the same time believed that you need to be fully a Jew as well that you needed to fulfill the Mosaic law, you needed to be circumcised if you were a man, and only then could you be really a follower of Christ. You had to have Jesus and the law and these traditions at the same time. And they were incredibly influential in the early church. And so what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians, he's refuting this. He's speaking out against the heresies that the Judaizers are bringing to the church. So again, hopefully you've heard a little bit about this, but it does help you to understand what you're reading when you go through the book of Galatians. The other part of Galatians that has been really helpful for me, I want to illustrate in a different way, and that is with every school child's favorite thing, and that is a pop quiz. We're going to take a Bible pop quiz. And what I'm going to do with this pop quiz is I'm going to read two passages. One is from Galatians and one is from Romans. And I want you to pick which book it really is. I'm not going to tell you. You've got to look at it and choose if it's Galatians or Romans. Okay? So let's try this for the first one. 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, don't vote yet. The second passage is this. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Two passages, two different books of the Bible. If you think it's Galatians and then Romans, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, if you think it's Romans and then Galatians, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, about a 50-50 split. This one is Galatians and then Romans. Galatians and then Romans, okay? And there's like another 33% of like, I'm not voting. I'm not voting on this. I, hey, I understand. Let's try another one. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Here's a different book of the Bible. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Go ahead and read it. If you think it's Galatians and then Romans, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay? If you think it's Romans and then Galatians, raise your hand. All right. So this one, it is Romans and then Galatians. It's Romans and then Galatians. See how tricky I was? I swapped it from before. All right, let's do one more. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. But then a different book of the Bible, same author, says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. All right, if you think it's Galatians and Romans, go ahead and raise your hand. And then opposite, Romans and then Galatians. Again, 50-50 split. This one's Galatians and Romans. It's Galatians and then Romans. Who here got 100%? If you're honest, you got 100 Oh, some of you were like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's great. I did not get 100%, and I paid for a seminary degree, so this is not easy to do. Why am I bringing this up? I'm not doing this to really test you and your Bible knowledge. What I'm trying to do is illustrate a really important point about Galatians, and that is how similar it is with Romans. It's so similar to the point where it's actually difficult to tell the difference in terms of theology and content between the two. You can get a seminarian up here who's like, yeah, I'm not exactly sure, because they are so similar in terms of what they're teaching, in terms of their theology. So the question you naturally ask is, what is the difference here? Why did you just like photocopy, although they can't photocopy, they had to handwrite it all out. Why not just copy it and send it off to the Galatian church or to the Romans, vice versa? Why do that? The big difference between Romans and Galatians is not on what's being taught, but why it's being taught. In Romans, Paul is teaching the church these truths for the very first time. But in Galatians, Paul is reminding them of truths that they had forgotten. You see, in the book of Romans, Paul had actually never met the Roman church before. And so when he's teaching them about grace, when he's teaching them about Jesus, when he's teaching them about the gospel, they're hearing this for the first time. For the first time, they're hearing about what Jesus has done for them, this completely new understanding of their relationship with God. First time conversation. But not so with the Galatians. He had spent time with the Galatians. He had already shared the good news with them. But because of the Judaizers, because of their power, because of their influence, they had forgotten 
And they started to step away from these truths that he had taught them over and over. And so he wrote this letter, this, this letter to call them out on this and to call them back to what they had known before. And that helps to explain the context a little bit because in Galatians, he's a little sharper than in Romans, if you've ever read it. For example, in Galatians chapter one, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who calls you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He's much sharper. He's much more to the point. And the reason is because they have forgotten this. They didn't know this. If they were just learning this for the first time, that'd be a little harsh, but he's not doing that. They'd forgotten these truths because of the Judaizers. And so he's calling them back to that. Why am I bringing this up? It's for two reasons. Number one, it is very helpful when you read the book of Galatians. That as you read Galatians, you'll kind of hear it in a different way. You'll understand the context and the reason why Paul is speaking the way that he is. But the other reason I think it's a powerful personal principle that we can apply to our own lives. And that principle is this. Sometimes what we need more in our lives with Christ is not to learn something new, but to remember something that we have forgotten. I think we have a tendency, if not an addiction, in American culture, which I'll call this, the never-ending American quest for the newest thing. Encoded into Americanism is this sense of always looking forward, always looking to what is coming, that the answer to our needs, the best things are always in front of us. And so we're always kind of striding into the future. And it's a very kind of American kind of tendency. And it's kind of perpetuated on a lot of different levels. I think about consumerism. I think about commercialism. How often are we told by marketers that all that you need is the new thing that we're giving you? It's the new phone. It's the new car. It's the new whatever. But that's the thing that's really going to answer it all for you. There are marketers out there on Amazon and elsewhere, and you may work in this room for all I know, but they are calculating this to a degree in your life where you're going on the internet or you're on the TV or whatever, and they are kind of training us to look forward to the new thing because they're answering a need that you never knew that you had. Yesterday, I didn't have that need, but you watch this commercial, and I have a need. I cannot live without this thing that I've lived 42 years beforehand without. And so that's, I think, kind of really kind of drafted into us. We're taught this over and over. I think it's ideological as well. How often, how many of us watch TED Talks? I'm raising my hand because I watch TED Talks all the time. As I watch TED Talks, there is kind of this hunger of this, this is what I need. This is what I needed. This new thing, this new book, this new teacher, this is what I need to unlock this part of my life. That's why my sleep is no good. I've been sleeping on my side instead of my back. And there's always this kind of new thing we're always kind of orienting ourselves to. I think we even do this spiritually as well. And I've seen this as a pastor. I've seen this sense that we get stymied in our growth. We feel like we're not growing in the way. We're not experiencing God in the same way. And oftentimes our first instinct is, what's new? I need to go to a new church. I need to listen to a new pastor. There is a new book that I need to read. Our instincts are always to go forward because somewhere in the future is the answer for the things that ail us. This is not sinful at all. And it's not, it's not a bad thing to do. But what I do think is that we need the counterbalance to this. Yes, maybe some, for some of us, what we need is that new thing. But I think what we understand from the book of Galatians, that's maybe for some of us, what we need is something that came before. A conviction, a teaching, 
a memory that we had before that we have all but forgotten. And that's what's holding us back. It's not something new that we have yet to learn. Instead, it's something old that we have completely forgotten. And I think that's what I want you to reflect on throughout this message. Not, is there something new that you need to learn, but maybe there's something you forgot. That's why oftentimes in more traditional churches, they'll say something interesting. They'll say, remember your baptism. Have you ever done that before? I don't know, maybe some come from that tradition. They'll actually take water and they'll sprinkle it on people. They're much more interactive in Orthodox and Catholic churches. They'll go up and down and they'll sprinkle you with basil or with some plant and with water. And they say, remember your baptism. Because they're calling out to remember, why did you get baptized? Why did you feel that you needed to get baptized? Because there was a lack in your life and God filled it. And so we have to remember things. Maybe there's something in your life that's holding you back and it's not something new. Maybe it's something old that you have forgotten instead. The problem with that is that if you have forgotten something, you don't know about it. And I realize this more and more whenever I come downstairs from my bedroom, I go to the kitchen and I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. And I have no idea. I cannot remember for the life of me why I'm there. And then I go upstairs and I don't know why I'm there either. And just wander from room to room of my house. Just like, what am I doing here? And if you've forgotten something, you don't know it. How do you know it ultimately? And so if you have forgotten some aspect of your faith life, how am I supposed to know something that I have forgotten ultimately? That's where the book of Galatians actually is really helpful because there are three truths that the Galatian church had forgotten. And coincidentally, the truths that the Galatians had forgotten are the same exact truths that we are prone to forgetting today. And so if you're looking for some insight into something that you may have forgotten, you're wondering, yeah, maybe I did forget something. The book of Galatians may clue you in because the things that they forgot are the things that we still forget even so much time afterwards. So what is the first truth that the Galatian church and that maybe some of us have forgotten? The first truth is that we are saved by Christ. We are saved by Christ. Part of what the Judaizers did is when they came, they came and they taught that, yeah, you should believe in Christ. You should believe in his death and resurrection, but you also need other things. Christ himself is not enough. You need the law. You need traditions. You need to eat certain things. If you're a man, you need to be circumcised. You need Jesus and these other things in order to be truly Christian, in order to be truly saved. In response to that, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians 2. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul comes out strongly to say, it's not the law. The law doesn't justify anyone. And in fact, in the book of Romans, what he'll do is he'll say, the law was only there to show you that you needed Jesus. That's its only thing. It's a 6,000 year illustration of how you will always fall short in your own strength and you will need the work of Jesus instead. That's what the law is for you. And so that's what Paul is teaching this church. We're not saved by what we do. We can never do it by ourselves. And the history of Israel demonstrates that and our own histories demonstrate that too. We're only saved by Jesus. Now, for those of us who are good Protestants in this room, we're thinking to ourselves, I already know this one. Skip to number two, because as a Protestant, I was raised in a Protestant church and I've learned this. There are worship songs. I know Amazing Grace by heart. And so, you know, clearly I don't need to know this because being saved by Christ, that's, that's something I've, I've learned from the very beginning. And I am not prone to forgetting such things. 
Well, let's read from Galatians chapter 2. When we read about the people who were influenced by the Judaizers and forgot they were saved by Jesus alone. Paul says this. When Cephas, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they, the Judaizers, arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Who here, the people who are being led astray from this Jesus alone gospel are number one, the apostle Peter, the head of the early church, the one of the three key disciples who witnesses Jesus' death and resurrection. Number two, James, the brother of Jesus and the head of the church of Jerusalem. And number three, the apostle Barnabas, who is a head of the church of Antioch and a good friend with Paul. And then we begin to realize, wow, anyone can forget this. Because if Peter, James, and Barnabas can forget this, and surely I can, even if I know the words of amazing grace by heart. Imagine that. And we have to realize that in some way, all of Christian history is the history of people forgetting this over and over and over again. What is Protestantism? It's not just people making new churches. It's when the Catholic Church forgot they were saved by Jesus alone. So Martin Luther stood up along with the reformers saying, we're not saved with with indulgences. We're not saved by tithes. We're not saved by any of this stuff. We are saved by Jesus alone. It's the same thing that's going on here. Even to the modern era, there are forces and temptations in our life that tell us through media or through books or political parties, it's not just Jesus. You need to do certain things. You need to believe certain things. You need to follow certain people. And that's what makes you virtuous. It could be the moral majority from the 80s. It could be the virtual signalers of the the places we're all right now. But even to this day, we are still tempted by this same heresy. We have to understand that be it Judaizers or apostles, first century or 21st, we are all equally prone to forgetting that we are saved by faith in Christ. And that's the first thing that I want you to reflect on. Maybe that's, what you for, well, maybe that's what you've forgotten. Maybe you think it's because I'm a good person and I'm a Christian, but that's what makes me saved. Or maybe it's the opposite and you think I am not a good person and so I can't be saved. But this is a good reminder for us to think about maybe one thing that we have forgotten, that we are saved only by Christ, not by what we have done. The second truth that the Galatian church had forgotten and that we also forget is that we, are, wait, that we live by the Spirit. That we live by the Spirit. The Judaizers came and they said, you can't just have faith in Christ. You've got to do things. It's your legalism and your obedience that will demonstrate that you are a good Christian. You must obey all these customs, these traditions, these laws, and these regulations. Basically, you have to be like us. You've got to be like a Pharisee, a Judaizer, in order to really be saved. You do it by your effort. You do it by your faithfulness instead. But Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, and I think you're, you're acquainted with this verse. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
And so what Paul says, instead of working it out by the flesh, he says, you can't just do it on your own. If you could have done it on your own, then why did you need Jesus? If you could have just muscled it out and been holy just by doing it on, all in your own effort, you wouldn't need Jesus. You can't do it on your own. What you need is the Holy Spirit instead. That's what allows us to live in a way that is pleasing to God, to honor God, but also to build shalom in the neighborhoods and in communities around us. We don't just do it by ourselves. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in us instead. We walk by the Spirit. This is such an important teaching that I think it's helpful to go a bit deeper with this because walking by the Spirit doesn't necessarily mean anything to us. When I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that really looks like. But Paul does. And so he illustrates that really well when he says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word in Greek for walk is the word pateo. And it's used often throughout the New Testament. But Paul doesn't use that word very consciously in this verse. The word that he uses here for walking by the Spirit is the word peripateo. And if you remember, I don't know, from... You probably haven't studied Greek, but from SAT classes and knowing prefixes from stuff, you can probably puzzle that out. Peri means to go around something. It's where we get the word perimeter, right? The, the distance around something. It's also another SAT word called peripatetic. Anyone remember that word, peripatetic? Right? Peripatetic means to learn by traveling. It means to learn through a journey with your feet. It's not when you learn something here. It's when you learn something here. That's what peripatetic means. And in essence, what he's saying here, what he's demonstrating or what he's communicating is this. Walking by the Spirit, it's not a one-time event, but inviting the Holy Spirit to travel with us every single day. I, I have a really broad denominational history. I was born and raised Roman Catholic, I've uh, been Presbyterian, Reformed for a good time. I served in a Foursquare, which is a uh, Pentecostal church. I have served at a Mennonite church. I have been a part of a black church. And now I'm at a free Methodist church. So I have seen almost every form except for Eastern Orthodox uh, out there. But I remember my time in the Foursquare church, very formative for me. And I remember oftentimes there was this phrase that I heard or even often said, which is, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you walking with the Spirit? And what oftentimes being communicated with that is that that baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens when you're saved, when the Holy Spirit falls on you and just you feel something in your life. Did that happen to you? And if the answer was yes, you would say, you're good to go. Come on someone else to the altar and pray instead. And oftentimes I think what was communicated in that context, the Holy Spirit is like a one-time thing or a periodic thing. It happens every so often in our lives. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, is something that happens to us once and we're good to go. I met the Spirit 10 years ago and so I'm still running on that. It's not what he's saying. He's saying every day is a Spirit day. We walk by the Spirit in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening instead. You know, the Holy Spirit's not like Costco. I have five kids, so I go to Costco every single week. But for some of you, Costco is like a more of a monthly thing. When you run out of toilet paper, you know, if they still sell it there or they have, you know, enough of it there. But that's kind of our attitude to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I need you. Okay, I'm good to go. I'm good to go for a good long time. See ya, I'm I'm out of here for a while. It's not what's being communicated here. We wake up and we invite the Holy Spirit to journey with us. Throughout our conversations, we listen for a third voice. Holy Spirit, what are you saying here? 
Why, why did you bring this person to me? Because it's not an accident that this person is in front of me right now. As we go down to bed, we say, Holy Spirit, where were you? Where was I? Where did I hear your voice? That is walking by the Spirit. And maybe that's something that we have forgotten as well. That we've come into a place, we walk by the Spirit once a year, once every four years, once in our lifetime. Instead, maybe God is calling us today to say, walk with me every day. Walk by the Spirit instead. Another thing that we can consider. The third truth that the Galatian church and we forget is that we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. The Judaizers came and one of the manifestations of their teaching was an interpersonal separation. It wasn't just ideological and they were teaching things. It got practiced every single day in the church. And so when they came and they taught, you had to be circumcised. You had to obey Jewish traditions. One of those Jewish traditions is that you were not supposed to eat in the same room as someone who was uncircumcised, someone who was a Gentile. You see that in the book of Acts as well. When Peter meets the centurion Cornelius, and the first thing he says is, you know that I shouldn't be in this room with you. It was a Jewish tradition. And they brought back that Jewish tradition into the church, into this place where all these different people were together, and they said, this is not right. We should be separated out. The Jews, you can't be with these people. Eat separately from them. Peter sees this. He gets afraid of them. So he even though he was the first one to realize about the Gentiles, he starts to separate himself out. James sets himself apart. Barnabas does the same thing until you have a separate church. Until you've got people over here, and then physically you have people over there. To that, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so he's saying you shouldn't be separated out. You're one in Christ instead. You're one one body. You're one faith in Christ. One father, one spirit, one baptism, he'll say in other portions of Scripture. So he's bringing these people back together. I think this is important for us to remember. But I think there is a power to what he's saying here that is lost to us. There's an importance to this teaching that is also lost on us. And it's helpful to understand what the relationships between these groups were really like in that time period. Some of us are so familiar with this passage that we hear Paul saying, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, man or woman, or slave and free. And we're like, yeah, I get it. That's nice. But when you think about it, those words mean nothing to us because we don't live in that context anymore. We're not first century Jews. And so when we hear this, we're like, I don't have problems with Gentiles or slaves or with people of opposite gender. So yeah, I, I get that you know, we're one in Christ. It's helpful for us to kind of place ourselves in the first century, and understand a simple point, which is there was bloodshed amongst these groups. These groups hated each other. So let me just kind of help us to kind of go back in time and to sit there and understand how they would have taken this teaching. He says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, right? Gentiles were uncircumcised people. People were considered unclean. That would include Greeks or Hellenists. It would include Romans of the Roman Empire. It would include, you know, uh, Samaritans, people who were Jewish by ideology and Jewish in terms of their birth, but they still were considered part of the Orthodox Jewish people. They were all 
part of this group called Gentiles. And so when Paul tells the church there's neither Jew nor Greek, what comes to their mind? How would they feel about this? The memory that would have come to a Jewish person is of the Seleucids. The Seleucids reigned in Israel after Alexander the Great, and they were Greeks. And they did not like Judaism at all because they felt like Greek culture and Greek gods were far superior. And so one of these leaders, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, did something really terrible. He committed atrocity after atrocity against the Jews. But one of the main ones that he did is called the abomination of desolation. He would take pigs and he would bring them into the temple, this holiest place of the people of Israel. He would slaughter pigs there to Zeus over and over and over again to defile it and to make it unclean so they could no longer worship there. And you know, the story of Hanukkah comes directly out of this because the people of Israel, they revolt against the Seleucids and they drive them out under Judas Maccabee. And then what happens, the temple has been defiled with pig's blood to Zeus and they have to cleanse it and they have to do it with these, these lamps, but there's not enough oil for these lamps. And so they don't know how to get enough oil, but the, the lamps keep on burning all throughout the purification process and they miraculously burn. And those lamps were menorahs. That's where you get Hanukkah. So it's a very key story to the people of Israel and to Jewish people. And so when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, they think, you mean the Greeks who slaughtered pigs on this altar in order to defile our holiest place? Is that who you're talking about? That's what they would have thought of. How about the Romans? When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Romans either. We don't know Romans. We're like, I'd love to go to Rome. I don't care about that place, right? What would they have thought about the Romans? Well, the Romans also occupied Israel during the time of Jesus, and they had a way of brutally putting down any kind of revolt, any kind of dissent. And there were many revolts against the Romans through, the, uh, through Jesus' time. One of the most famous punishments they would use is crucifixion. They would line the Roman roads to Jerusalem with crucifixes, and they weren't empty crucifixes. They were full of people in order to say to the Jewish people, you're never going to do that again. And finally, in 70 AD, there's a major revolt that happens. And what the Romans do is they send a general named Titus to the city of Jerusalem and he completely destroys the, the temple, the temple of Jerusalem, to the point it's never been rebuilt. And they take all the wealth that was in that temple and they send it over to Rome and they build a building with that booty that came out of uh, that temple. And they call it the Colosseum the Roman Colosseum. In fact, if you go to Rome to this day, there is a plaque that they've unearthed that actually says this, it records this, and he says, this building was built with booty from the Judean conquest, from the temple of Jerusalem. And so when Paul comes up to the Galatian church and he says, there's neither Jew nor Roman, the memory that comes to mind, they say, you mean the Romans who destroyed the temple? and sent our wealth to build the Colosseum, which is sacrificing early Christians? Is that who you're talking about? That's the bloodshed that existed between those groups. Same thing with the Samaritans. There were Samaritans in the early church. They would rejoice when they recognized that Jesus was their Messiah. Jews and Samaritans killed each other frequently. They would defile each other's holy places. This is the truth when he says this thing. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there is bloodshed, war, hatred, and racism of all sorts that is going on during this time. They don't say, yep, okay, I'm good with this. Their jaws drop. They clench their teeth. And they say, this is not possible. I will not sit in fellowship with a person like this. 
That's how they would have truly felt in this time period. It goes beyond this as well. He says, there's neither slave nor free, right? And again, we think, oh, we're Americans. There's no slavery, at least right now in this country, not legally. But we think, yeah, it's not a big deal. All three of those cultures, Jews, Greeks, and Romans, they're all slaveholders. And so they never believed that slaves were the same kind of person, the same value of a person as a free person. Men and women as well. Three of those cultures, all of them misogynistic. Jews, Greeks, Romans. None of them believed that women were on par with men. And you he's reflected even in the spiritual prayers that they would give. From the Jewish prayer book called the Siddur. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now you get why Paul says what he says. But it wasn't just the Jews. This is what Pluto would write. I thank God that I was born Greek and not barbarian, free man and not slave, man and not woman, but above all, I was born in the age of Socrates. In the age of Socrates. I think this is what we often fail to understand about this passage. We often fail to understand how at odds the diverse groups of the early church were with one another. We read this passage about there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, uh, man or woman. We're like, yeah, that sounds great. During this time, it would have created this, these questions. How? How can you expect me to sit with a slave? I own this person and now I'm their brother? It was a new understanding of humanity, of, of gender, of what it meant to be who you are. That's how challenging and difficult this teaching was. Why do I bring that up? Why do I bring that up? Well, I bring it up partially because it's important to the book of Galatians. It helps us to realize how controversial this was. We're not, we're not kind of thrown off by this. In this time period, the Galatian church would have had to really chew on this because this was a hard teaching. But there's another very important reason why we have to understand what the early church was really like. And that's because of what the church is like right now. The greatest challenge facing every church in America is remaining in fellowship with those with whom we share a deep disagreement. I've heard, I've talked to the pastors of PBC, and I think you guys have weathered the pandemic relatively well. It's not that way in the rest of the country. I know it's not that way in Seattle. And I know that's not that way in other denominations that I've served with and that I'm in fellowship with. What I've observed and seen throughout this country is that as the ideological and the political and the cultural differences have kind of come to light in our country, Christians have looked at each other and we begin to realize, wait, you believe that? And then we think to ourselves, I don't know if I can stay in the same room with you. I don't know if I can remain in fellowship. You voted for that person? I don't know. I don't know. And there's this genuine sense that too much water has gone under the bridge. And now it's just a separate kind of thing. There is nothing that can bring these two groups apart because the Grand Canyon exists now between political parties and states, Texas and Seattle, uh, San Francisco and South Carolina. There's too much. And these gulfs that exist now between us cannot be reconciled to one another. I'm not saying this as an accusation. I'm saying it as a confession. Because there often have been times I've heard from believers things that I never imagined I would hear. And I think to myself internally, fortunately at this point, and I haven't externalized it, I don't know if I can really stay here with you. If you say that about my own experience, if you say that about the reality of so many people in this country and you're just throwing it away, I don't know if I can stay here. 
And so I say this more as a confession than anything else. But what I think we have to remember is that the people and cultures that comprised the early church were no more unified than our own. Yes, when we look at each other, when we look at this country, we see the Grand Canyon and we see something, we're like, we can't bridge this gap. This is too much for us to do. I cannot imagine us being in fellowship with one another. We should remember the early church thought the same thing. The Jews looked at the Greeks The Romans looked at the Samaritans. The men looked at the women and the slaves looked at the free and they said, how are we going to do this? How can we ever become one family, one baptism, one church in Christ? And yet here we are 2,000 years later and those divisions mean nothing to us anymore. We think Jew and Gentile, why is that even a thing? God did bridge that gap and he created one family, one church out of things that never in anyone's imagination could be reconciled to one another. And we need to remember that today. We need to remember that the Grand Canyon that we see between us as believers is not the Grand Canyon to God. He has bridged gaps like that, greater ones where there was more bloodshed. I I, I think I can say this pretty confidently. There was more hatred and more bloodshed between the peoples that existed in the early church than there is now. Yes, there's a lot of problems that we have but very few of us could claim that kind of hatred and animosity. Maybe if you're a part of the first peoples of this country, maybe if you're a descendant of slaves, you can say, no, I've got a legitimate beef and I will grant you that. But for many of us, we cannot claim that we have that kind of animosity and hatred between us. And I want you to be encouraged by that. Yes, there is a big, what feels like an insurmountable challenge in front of the church we as the American church, to stay in fellowship as a church, to be one in Christ, despite all these things that have come to light. But I want each of us to remember, God has done it once, and so he can do it again. That maybe 2,000 years later, some other believers will say to us, you know, political parties, Donald Trump, this and that, mass, no mass. I don't understand what they're talking about. Because that doesn't make any sense to me, because God did something new. And he formed a new community out of fractures that we thought never could be healed. And I hope that you will be encouraged by that and you won't forget that as we step forward into the future. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and just invite us to a time of reflection. Not to look forward, but to look back. To look back. That for some of us, maybe we've forgotten something. Maybe it's one of the things that I preached about today. Maybe it's something separate. But just allow the Holy Spirit as you invite the Holy Spirit to walk in your life, just say, Holy Spirit, is there something I'm forgetting? I'm in the kitchen right now and I want to remember something that's very important that I have forgotten. Shed light on that. Why don't we just do that in prayer together and then I'll I'll pray for us before we close our service. Spirit, we want to walk with you, not just once in our lifetime, not once in a season, but right now. So God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us what we have forgotten. Remind us what we came to the kitchen for, Lord. 
some of these important truths that are so critical, but just have passed out of our, our memory. For some of us, we have come under the illusion that we are saved by something outside of Christ. It's because I'm a good person that I'm saved. It's because I'm a bad person that I never will be. Helps to remember it's only you. You are the only one who can save us. You are our savior. For some of us, we are trying to run on our own fumes, on our own power. Help us to walk by the spirit. Not every so often, but every day that our holiness, our righteousness would be empowered by no less than the spirit of God. And for all of us, God, help us to remember that we are one in Christ. Not by homogeneity, not by uniformity, not because we voted for the same people, not because of any of these things, but because we're one in you. And God, I pray that as you did so many years ago in the early church, that you took divisions and fractures that seemed irreconcilable and impossible to bring together, and you made them memories that we can barely remember. Do that with us today, we pray. That you would make the things that stand between us the things that no longer do. God, you no longer do that. We can't do that by ourselves. The Holy Spirit, walk with us. Walk with us. Help us to remember that which we have forgotten. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.